Well, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us today at New City Church as we continue our series, Let's Talk About It. Last week, we started off by talking shame, by talking about shame and regret, and, and we were in the middle of a six-week series where we were talking about the things that impact all of us, and sometimes, for various reasons in the church, they might be uncomfortable, taboo to talk about, yet they impact us, and so that's what we were looking at a few months ago. We sent out a survey asking you to pick the topics, and so these are the topics that were selected the most, and so today, last week, we talked about shame and regret. And today, we are going to be talking about porn. Now, I want to say this as I begin. I think as when you read the Gospels, uh, you see a man, Jesus, the God who has come, who anytime you were around this man, you undoubtedly left encouraged. Whether he was talking about something difficult or something great, like I just feel like he's one of those people that if you have these people in your life, maybe a friend or a mentor or a coach or whoever, like every time you leave being with that person, regardless of what the conversation was about, like you just leave feeling better and feeling encouraged and feeling really excited to move forward in life. And I have to imagine that is what it was probably like for people that were around Jesus. And so I just say that because today, here's my goal, to leave us with hope and leave us with love and to leave us encouraged because I think this is what it would have been like to be around Jesus. And so today as we talk about a topic that impacts all of us to various degrees, I just encourage you to stick with me because that is where we are going to go. And so as I begin, I just want to share a couple of statistics about pornography. These may or may not be new to you. I think all of us might know, you know, that it's pretty accessed and impacts people in various ways. Like just a couple of quick things. Uh, according to a nationally representative survey of United States teens by the Journal of Health and Communication in 2021, it found that 84.4% of 14 to 18-year-old males and 57% of 14 to 18-year-old females have viewed pornography. According to the British Board and Film Classification, they did a report in 2020, uh, and it said this, that 75% of parents believe their ch children had never encountered porn. And then of those, seven, of those parents who said their children had never encountered porn, it said, but of their children, 53% reported that they had, in fact, seen porn. So the majority of parents think their kids have never seen this, and yet the majority of their kids actually have. According to SimRush Traffic Analytics, which kind of tracks where people go online, as of May 2021, it found that porn sites received more website traffic in the United States than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Pinterest, and LinkedIn combined. The Barner Group, which is a research group in 2014, said this. It found that 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admitted to viewing pornography at least once a month. Of the Christian men who did look at pornography, the majority did so several times per week. And here's what we know. Any kind of a survey where you have to self-select or identify a negative characteristic, you're much more likely to do it. And so those numbers are probably actually higher than that. In 2021, the Survey Center of American Life, which is a large nonpartisan research group, found that 57% of men aged 30 to 49 had viewed pornography at least once in the last month. 49%, uh, this is a Barner survey in 2016, 49% of young adults say all or most of their friends use porn regularly. Again, that number is probably higher too because it's not necessarily something that you talk about all the time. Um, uh, Opinium Research found that 53% of women have read or are currently reading erotic literature. And then the Barner Group and Covenant Eyes did some surveys. They found two things. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once per month. 
And they also found that one in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and are currently struggling. So, of course, we could go on and on, but those statistics are not encouraging. Uh, and in fact, there's also even a lot more statistics, but that's enough that I'll share for today, that talk about how the majority of people see nothing wrong with any of this. And maybe you're like, I'm not sure what the big deal about that is, and so why does all of this even matter? But for us as a church, as people who are trying to follow Jesus, or maybe you're here and you're just curious about who this Jesus guy is, we want to know what God says about stuff like this and what God wants for us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I want to say this as we get into it as well, that there is not one person in here today or watching online who has not sinned sexually, not a single person. And so if you are here today and you feel convicted about your past or maybe something that you might be currently involved in, I want you to know that you are not any different than anyone else. This is not something wrong with you. There's not a problem with you. This is something that impacts all of us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, it'll be on the screen. The Apostle Paul writes this, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. So he's talking to the believers in Corinth and he's talking about Israel's past unfaithfulness and how they were chosen by God. And yet even they stumbled and, fa fell and, fa and failed many times. And we are no different. That we all are human beings, we all have similar desires and pursuits and wants and things like that. And so again, you are not alone, no matter how you feel this morning. I just want us all to know that. Now, there's a lot of scriptures we could look at when it comes to what God might want us when it comes to sex and sexuality. I just want to mention a few this morning. We're going to be in various parts of the Bible. So if you want to follow along with those black Bibles or on your phone, you're welcome to do that. But all the scriptures will also be on the screen this morning. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, in Matthew chapter 5 verse uh, through chapter 7, you have what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus's longest recorded sermon in the gospel. And what's also interesting is that when you read the Sermon on the Mount, what you do not find is the hippie sheepholder decaf-drinking, head-and-shoulders, shampooed-haired Jesus. That's not who you find. If you really want to know who Jesus is and what he's taught, Matthew 5 through 7 is a great place to look. And in his Sermon on the Mount, he spends a lot of time talking about what does it look like to live a life that actually honors God. And just because you can have these external things in your life that look really good, if your motivation or why you're doing them isn't right, then it doesn't matter what it looks like on the surface. God knows. And so he goes through a list of things, money, sex, anger, various things. And he also talks about, again, sex and sin. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So when he says you have heard that it is said, he's talking about the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible scriptures. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what is he talking about here? That adultery uh, is serious. Sexual pursuits out of anyone that is not your spouse is adultery in your heart. Now, again, all of us know the seriousness of adultery. Um, it's bad. It can ruin fit, fit marriages, and it's really hard to build back trust. Like, it's, it's really difficult to go through or to walk through like something like that. I don't think, however, we fully appreciate how even more difficult it was for most of human history, particularly for this time frame, because for most of human history, you're not very mobile. You kind of grow up 
and live where you are. You're, you kind of live in the same community your entire life. There's no banks. There's no saving accounts. So inheritance and taxes, they're all kind of divided up by families. And so when you have an affair, when you commit adultery, it rocks not just the couple and not just their children, but the entire community. Like it was a really big deal, even today, but even more so in ancient cultures where you can't escape it. Like you're there for your entire life. You're probably around 120-ish people at most for the most of your life. And it was serious, right? Adultery violated another person and it breaks your marriage covenant. And of course, a marriage covenant is supposed to reflect the relationship between God and his people. So in the Old Testament, just like God covenanted to his people Israel, there was this idea that marriage also, when, you, when a man and a woman love and covenant and serve one another, we reflect how God loves us to the world. This is why if you've been to weddings, a lot of times you might hear Ephesians chapter five uh, shared where Paul talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And then he says that this is supposed to reflect Christ and the church. This is where Paul gets this idea, right? That when a husband and wife love and serve and care for one another, we demonstrate how God loved and served and cared for us. And so again, for Jesus, it's not just about an external checklist. Most of the people who were listening to the Sermon on the Mount probably hadn't actually physically had an affair, but it's about your heart and your posture and your desire. And we see here in Matthew chapter five, that Jesus defines lustful intent as adultery, lustful intent, which of course porn would fall under that list. Porn is lustful intent, right? It is actively desiring sexually someone that you have not given your life to. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul also says this. Now, again, we're talking about some pretty heavy things this morning. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth who's involved, who, who are involved in some pretty serious stuff. And in fact, in the church in Corinth, there was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother and there was no one in the church that seemed to have a problem with it. Like no one was saying like, hey, this is probably not the best idea. And so Paul is writing to a church that's living in a highly sexualized culture. And he says this, he says, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone who is joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Right? So what Paul is saying here is that every believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, is a part of the body of Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been following him for five minutes or 50 years. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a part of Christ's body that he gave up literally his own body to redeem, to love, and to forgive. And so the question here is, should Christ's body be given over to a prostitute? Now, again, it's helpful to know the historical context. Yes, prostitution, sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, again, is not what God would have for us. But this was even worse, if you could say that, in this first century in Corinth, because oftentimes there was what known, what's known as temple cult prostitution. So you would go to these various temples and you would have sex with people as a way to worship these false and foreign and un, untrue gods. And so this is what would have been in mind as the people are reading this. So not just thinking like sleeping with a prostitute, but they're thinking of like worshiping a God as you do that. And so Paul's question here is, should members of Christ's body partake in things like 
this. Because again, in verse 16, when it says the two will become one flesh, Paul here is referencing Genesis chapter 2, where God institutes marriage and has man and a woman give their bodies over to one another. This is why we're not going to read it this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if we were to keep reading, Paul writes how in marriage... One's body belongs to one another, that you give of your lives and your beings to each other, that you are committed to each other over everyone else. And so when you and I join his church, we are committing to him and the good that God wants for us. This is why in verse 18, he continues by saying this, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, to be fair, verse 18 is a little confusing. There's much been written by what Paul means about how you sin against not just yourself, but your own body and and all that's going on there. But basically, it seems to be, at least in context, generally speaking, the idea here is that an unlawful sexual union is incompatible with a believer's union with the body of Christ. An unlawful and unlife-giving sexual union is incompatible with, a, with the union of the body of Christ, where we are to be temples of God. This is what it talks about, uh, that God's presence is wherever we go. So before Jesus came, God's presence resided in the temple in Jerusalem that you would have to go and offer sacrifices and do all these things to draw near to it. After Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit now lives in us. And so if you are a follower of Christ, you and I are many temples out in the world that we bring Christ's presence or God's presence with us into the world, particularly when we love and serve and care for people the way God has loved and served and cared and forgiven us, which means what we do with our physical bodies, the holders of God's presence matters. So again, sexual lust, promiscuity, and lustful intent is not what God would have for those desiring to walk with him. Doing such things dishonors God with our bodies, or put it this way, that God is either honored or dishonored by our sexual pursuits. That's what we see throughout scripture, that he is either either honored by what we choose to do or dishonored by what we choose to do. Now, let me be very clear. Sex is not bad. It's created by God. It is holy. It is a good thing. There is books of the Bible written on it. So you can find those up after service. You can Google those if you want. That's, there's, there's stuff there. Maybe we'll do a sermon series. That'll be a good, like, you know, get people in the building if we did that uh, at Song of Solomon one day. Maybe. We'll see. Right? So it's not bad at all. It is a good gift given to us to enjoy and to complement one another. It is given for our good. But God wants us to do it in a way that it will actually be for our good. Now, you could ask, okay, if this is true, well, then how far is too far? Like, what can I do that still, like, honors God, but is, like, enjoyable and is not such a bad thing if I'm not married yet? Like, what's okay? What's not okay? Now, I'm going to say, that's a legitimate question. I understand why people ask it. That's not what we're going to get into this morning. But that can be the question. Like, okay, if, God, if, there, if we can honor God or dishonor God and lustful intent and sex is a good thing if we've committed ourselves to a person, then what can I get away with that, like, isn't bad? But here's what I just want us to know this morning, that scripture celebrates a man and a woman coming, covenanting together and sexual uh, pursuits or sexual activities outside of that is dishonoring to what God would want us to do and dishonoring to other people. 
I kind of think of it like this. It's not the best example, and, I, and I've shared this before. Um, but I, growing up, like I never got straight A's. I got A's and B's and sometimes C's. And I often thought, probably because I'm really arrogant, was like my friends that got straight A's, I was like, you're not smarter than me. Like, you're just not. Like, I don't, I don't believe it, right? It's like, well, Dylan, you like really bad. Like, I don't care. Like, I didn't believe it, right? Now, part of it was like lack of discipline. I could have studied hard. I could have done these things, certainly. But I always kind of was like, eh, like, I feel like I'm like as smart as them. I just, whatever. I didn't get straight A's until my junior year of college. And the reason why is at this point, I was a philosophy and religion major. I was taking all philosophy and religion classes. And yeah, like I wanted to get good grades, but like that wasn't like the main driver behind me finally getting straight A's. The main driver was I was interested in the material, like I wanted to learn and I wanted to study. And the straight A's were nice, but it was kind of like a byproduct about it. Now, why do I share that? Because if our desire is to honor God, it's not so much about what I can and cannot do, but what can I do to experience God's presence more fully in my life? That's the better question. Or put another way, again, if we just want to be really honest this morning, we could say this, that any sexual activity outside the covenantal marriage between a man and a woman is a sin. So I just want to be very clear. Again, this is, my, this is maybe different than what culture says. I'll, let me say this. This is certainly the minor, minority belief of our culture at large, absolutely. So I just also want to say this. You can disagree with this idea. You are welcome to disagree with this idea, but our, our, our desire here this morning is not to learn to, to, try to, pursue, to try to figure out what we think is right or wrong. We're going to submit ourselves to Scripture and let Scripture tell us. So we can disagree with Scripture if that's fine, but we just need to be honest about what we're doing here. They're like, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing. I'm not sure that this sexual stuff is wrong. I get it. I'm not, no condemnation coming from me today, but we want to see what the Scripture actually tells us. And so here's what this means. Just remind us. Here's what this also means, that all of us, again, have sinned in this area. We have done things. We have desired things. We have intended to do things with people who are not our spouse. All of us have fallen short in this area. Now, and I say that this is probably a little encouraging and discouraging, right? It's discouraging because it's like, well, man, like we're all messed up. But it's encouraging to know, hey, we're all messed up. Like we are all in this together. And this is who Jesus came to redeem. Again, it's not okay that we're all messed up, right? But you are not alone. That's the point. Again, you should not think I'm screwed up. I'm worse than everyone else. God cannot love me. This is who God came to redeem. People who have all had lustful intent towards people who are not our spouses. We've all been there. In fact, if we read 1 Corinthians again, but start in verse 12, here's what Paul says. He says, so whoever thinks he, might, he stands must be careful not to fall. If you ever think, I'm fine, whether it's sexual, sexually or any otherwise, don't do that. He says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also pro provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now, what this means, particularly when it comes to porn and sexual activity in these types of areas, is that no one should assume that they're good. No one should assume, even if you have fought this well and you have guardrails in your life, like you shouldn't assume, well, this just won't happen to me. We should be proactive, especially in a culture today where I think a lot of our problems is not necessarily because we were uh, intentionally trying to pursue these things, because it's everywhere. 
You have ads on your phone. You have Netflix. You have the internet. Like you, you might not even be searching for something, but then something pops up and it brings you somewhere or it leads you down a path that you didn't even intend to be 30 minutes ago. So no one should assume that we are okay, that this doesn't impact us. What we do need to remember, however, is that God is faithful. And so you may be weak, but God is strong. And hear me, I know that this area seems impossible for many people. I get it. You've tried, it's like, and you think you know it's wrong, and you don't, but you just, it's a problem. You can't seem to get over it. But I just want to say this. One of the things we assume, again, often in life when it comes to our problems and our failures and addictions, is things just are how they are, and there's nothing we can do about it. But if that, and if that's you this morning, if you feel like, well, I guess this is, I know it's bad, it's hard, I just, there's nothing I can do about it. Here's the good news. And we've said this every week in this series. We're probably going to say this every week in this series. You need to know that that is a lie. Things are not just what they are. Instead, you need to know this, that you don't have to do the things you used to do. Because in Christ, you are not the person you used to be. You do not have to do the things you used to do because in Christ, you are not the person you used to be. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is residing within you and is inviting you to lean on him. Listen to me this morning. We do not gather and worship a God who tells us what to do. We worship a God who does what we cannot we don't worship a God who leaves us in our sin, but we worship a God who rescues us out of it. That's why Jesus came. We don't worship a God who condemns the broken, but a God who brings dead things to life. We don't worship a God who says you must do better or else. We worship a God who did better for us. And I know we got a lot of white people in here, but you can say amen to that. Listen, the gospel changes everything. Jesus and what he has done and what he has brought us out of and what he has redeemed us out of, that's what changes it. Not us feeling guilty and feeling really bad and trying to do better in our own effort. Again, we need the spirit of God to help us when we are weak. Listen, sin and death could not hold Jesus, which means if you are in Christ, it cannot hold you. It might feel impossible. You might feel like you have no way out, but you have the option in Christ and in the community that he has given you to resist sin and temptation. It's not easy, but he invites us in. And so I just want to say this this morning, that in Christ, you are not defined by your addiction to porn. You are a child of God. You are not the type of person who just can't seem to overcome it. Like, I'm just not that type of person. That's not true. You have been given the spirit of God to encourage you and guide you. Pornography, sexual immorality, yes, it is a sin, but it is not greater than our Savior. Right? It feels shame. If you feel shameful and broken this morning, here's the good news. You don't have to walk in that. Christ meets all of us where we are, but he has no desire to leave us there. And so I just want to give two practical things this morning. If this is an issue for you or you're trying to work through it, what should I do? Here's what I want us to know. Here's the first thing, that no sin is greater than our Savior, including this, nothing. Jesus came, and overcame, Jesus came to overcome sin and death for everyone who would repent and call on his name. Again, none of us have lived up to God's holy standard in this area, and he knows us. None of us have lived up to God's holy standard in any area, and he has come to redeem us. And so again, if, this is, if you're feeling particularly condemned and guilty, you just need to remember this morning, that it is not greater than what Christ is offering for you, what Christ has done for you on the cross. No sin is greater than our Savior. And the second thing to know is this, that secret sin will always keep you in bondage. 
Secret sin will always keep you in bondage. And so you have to do something about it. Here's the thing. These promises of God that I mentioned a few, week, few minutes ago that, that warm our souls and stir our hearts and we get really excited about, here's the reality. They will never become real for you if you do not posture yourself to receive them. They won't. And I'm talking about even following Jesus and giving your heart to him, receiving the grace and mercy of God. You have to posture yourself, say, Lord, I need your grace and forgiveness. But even walking with the spirit and allowing God to encourage you and help you fight temptation, you have to have rhythms and practices in your life that encourage you to do that. And so I just want to say something this here this morning. If you're here, you are doing that, right? Attending church is one of the things that we can do in our lives to encourage us to follow Jesus. Because following Jesus, again, it's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not just listening to podcasts and sermons and YouTube and doing it by myself. That is not what God would have for us. He wants things in our life to encourage us, and we need community. So even by the fact that you're here this morning, that's an, that is a good step. I want to encourage you in that. But we have to have things in our life that encourage us to posture our hearts in a way to want to walk with Jesus. And that is how we begin to experience his grace. First John says it this way. John was one of the followers of Jesus. He says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so again, following Jesus first and foremost begins with repentance and faith. It begins with simply being honest about your brokenness and your need for a savior, that you are not strong enough on your own. And it is okay to admit that, that you need God's grace and you need God's spirit. And no one will be shocked when we confess our sins to one another, right? So often, especially in this area, there's shame and guilt. We don't want to tell anybody. And the person next to us is also feeling shame and guilt. And if one of us would just say something, we would, the, the weight of all this would be lifted off our shoulders because we would know we are not alone. We have to confess and be honest. What's interesting, so we're part of Acts 29. It's a large church plant network. And so I have the privilege of helping assess some of the church planters a couple of times a year. And it's always a really great joy. And, and one of the things, you know, we ask a lot of questions and do a lot of assessment stuff. It's really good. And one of the things we found, the question has now shifted. Even, even the statistics I talked about in the beginning, even with people in ministry looking at porn, the question is no longer, have you looked at porn? The question now is, when was the last time? That's what I ask a lot. When was the last time? Because we need proactive safeguards in our life in place. And what I have found is a lot of people will think, well, it hasn't been a problem for me for a while. And so they don't have anything in place. So when they are tempted, there is a good chance that they are not going to find a way out of it. So the first thing we need to do, we just need to be honest. This is a struggle for all of us in various ways. And so what do we do? Again, if I can read 1 Corinthians one more time, here's what Paul tells us. It says this. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. So we shouldn't assume that we'll be fine with this forever. Again, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So what do we do? Here's what Paul says, verse 14. So then... My dear friends, flee from idolatry. What Paul doesn't say here is just pray really hard or just ask God one time and then you'll be totally fine. 
What he says is that if you want to experience freedom in this area or in any area in life, you, you have to pursue him and create boundaries in your life where it is harder to sin so that you can experience more of his presence. Here's the reality when it comes to stuff like this. Avoidance is greater than your will. Avoidance is more important than having this self-will that you can't seem to get over, right? If someone who is an alcoholic, we think someone who is a strong, if someone who is fighting alcoholism strongly, they don't go to the bar and just try to white-knuckle it and stare at the beer and try to drink it, right? A wise recovering alcoholic doesn't go to the bar at all. They avoid it, right? If someone is overcoming a social media addiction, the wise thing to do is not to have all of your social media apps on your home screen and try really hard not to press it. Right? The wise thing is to delete it off your phone entirely, having things in your life that allow you to avoid it all together or make it a lot more harder to access it in the moments where you are weak. And so if I can really quickly, I just want to give you three practical things that I have found helpful in my life. Listen to me. I am no better than any of you. Me being a pastor does not make this any easier for me. But there are three things that I do in my life that allow me to be able to preach about this topic to you with integrity. And so I just want to commend them to you. If you're like, man, I, I've had this struggle for a while. Most people probably don't know about it. What should I do? Here are three things that I found really helpful. One, I have something on my devices called Covenant Eyes. There's various things you could do. It tracks pretty much what you look at. And then I have two, two, two of my guy friends every week get a report. And if there's anything suspicious at all, they see it. Uh, and so, in fact, a couple weeks ago when I was preparing for this porn sermon, I said, hey, <laughs> some stuff might come up. So just so you know, this is, but it's really great because it, it, it doesn't just do text. If it sees images that it's bad. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a big IT person. Is there a way around it? There probably is. I've never tried to figure it out, but I'll just be honest with you. The fact that it might catch something I shouldn't be doing, sometimes that's what helps me. Now you should say, well, it should be your love for the Lord. It should be your desire to pursue your wife above everything else. That's true. But I am just like you, and I am no better, and I need things in my life that even if it's not the best motivation, it's better than nothing at all. And so I would commend something like Covenant Eyes. It's a monthly subscription you can put on your devices, and you can have people see where you are going. The second thing, the thing that I would commend more than anything else, is I have a pastor friend that we get together uh, every other week, talk about life, ministry, and we have 10 accountability questions that we ask each other, four of which have to do with sex and sexuality and sexual integrity four of them. And I also have a discipleship group of guys that I meet with every Tuesday morning, and we've got some of those as well. Here's what I found. It's not enough to have someone to say, hey, if you look at something, just let me know. Or just say, hey, I'll just send you my reports. If you see something, email me. Because after a while, it can get awkward. If you haven't talked about it, it feels weird. What I have discovered is having someone who you proactively talk about this stuff with, with some consistently, consistency, knowing you're going to ask each other these questions makes it really easy to confess. And so I'm not saying you have to find someone that you meet with every week or every other week. I think it would be wise to have someone you meet with at least once a month and not just say, hey, if something comes up, I'll let you know, but to have proactive questions. It will make all the difference in the world. So having someone that you regularly talk with saying, hey, we're going to ask each other these questions is really helpful. And a third thing I found helpful was limiting your time on your phone and social media and scrolling. Now, I have some boundaries, not because of this, but it's kind of a secondary thing that's helpful. Like most nights, I'll turn my phone off at nine o'clock because I want to do some other stuff. And, and so when you have these boundaries, what can happen is where you're much, much more less likely to fall into temptation if you are just around it less. So again, some device on your software, a regular meeting with questions with somebody, or you know, limiting your time on devices in general can help. Now, again, remember this, as I say all this, that God loves you. 
which also means we must, he loves those we minimize for our sexual gain. And I'll just say this, uh, some pe- a lot of people today, again, would say sexual porn is not that big of a deal, not hurting anybody. There's, it's hard to find a hardline statistic of this because there's a lot of them and they're all kind of all over the place. But it seems that the majority, as in over 50% of people who are involved in pornography, are sex slaves. So we cannot have this culture that says sex slavery is bad and watch pornography as if it doesn't matter. If you want the sex industry to take a nosedive, you and I would refrain from pornography. Those things are immensely linked. They matter. We cannot love those who God loves if we are going to minimize them for our sexual gain. Remember this, that you were bought at a price. And so we honor God in response to how he tweeted, treated us. Here's the thing. When God ever, whenever we have these things where God is asking us not to do something, it's easy for us to think that God is a buzzkill. He wants us to be bored. He doesn't want us to have fun. But could it not be that just like a parent who loves his children, a God who loves us and knows what brings us joy and happiness and gladness might have guardrails in our life so we can experience the joy and the gladness that he wants us to experience. Could it not be that he says this is a good gift, best experience in this context with these boundaries so that you don't have to walk with shame and regret and taking advantage of people? That's why this matters. I'll read one more passage of scripture and then we'll close. In John chapter 8, it's a familiar story to perhaps many of you where Jesus is, finds himself, there's a crowd with a woman who's going to be stoned to death for having an affair, for committing adultery. Now, of course, where's the man? He is also as culpable as she is, but he's not here. And so they're, gonna, they're gathering about this woman. They're going to stone her to death for, having, for committing adultery. And Jesus comes up and he starts riding into the sand, the scripture, or the, to the ground. The scripture doesn't tell us what he's riding, but then it says this in verse 7. It says, when they, which is the crowd, persisted in questioning him, which is Jesus, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. I love that because the older you are, the more you know that you've blown it and the more opportunities you've had. It's like, yeah, I've, I've done some stuff in my life as well. It says, only when he was left with the woman in the center, when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin any more. This is who our God is. He forgives the broken And he says, sin is sin, and it matters. Notice he doesn't say, I forgive you. He says, I forgive you, and what you've done, don't do that. Flee from that. That is a sin. That is not good for you or for others. But but when it comes to me, who's the Lord over everything, who created all things, I forgive you. And this is who Jesus is. He's honest with sin and what it is. And he's honest with his redemption and what he offers us. Again, remember, you don't have to do the things you used to do or the things you are currently finding yourself trapped in because in Christ, you are not the person you used to be. God loves you. He cares for you. He wants good for you. And he's offering community and grace to allow yourself to come out of it. So again, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with these things, you have to tell someone. We said this last week with shame and regret. You don't have to tell everybody, but you need to tell somebody to walk alongside with you. And again, I'm telling you, no one will be surprised 
We have, you, you, are, you, are full, you are in a room full of sexual sinners who God has redeemed and God has loved. You don't have to do the things you used to do because in Christ, you are not the person you used to be. God is honest about our brokenness, but he is honest about his love for us. So let's pray.